It's Your Dime, a straight talk interview series presented by Shift Gold. I'm your host, Mike Meharry. In this episode, I'll be talking with Wall Street trainer and libertarian activist Alex Merced about Wall Street and economics. Alex is a trainer in the financial industry, and he has produced hundreds of educational videos on a variety of economic topics. He currently serves as the vice chair of the Libertarian National Committee. During the interview, Alex and I talk about his political and philosophical evolution, the importance of economic education, his economic influences, the biggest economic myths on Wall Street, the impact of the Fed and central banking, and the likelihood of another economic crash. Along the way, we discuss various economic topics, and he gives the best explanation of gold-backed ETFs that I've ever heard. All right, I'm here with my good friend, Alex Merced. How you doing? I'm, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. It's always a great day to get to spend time with friends. That's right. And I appreciate you taking a little bit of time to do this. So I'm going to start off this interview with the uh, standard question that all It's Your Dime guests get as the first question. It's basically, who are you and why are you on my show? So your opportunity to just give a little bit of your background and who you are and what you're doing. Got it. Okay, so a little bit about me. Uh, my name's Alex Brissett. Um, I'm, I'm, I wear several hats. I'm probably most well known as the, uh, the vice chair of the Libertarian Party, but also I've been an instructor for Greco Financial Training the last uh, 11 years, training people in, in the financial industry from uh, new, uh, new entry-level people getting their Series 7 and Series 63, all the way up to uh, CEOs and uh, household names getting their Series 24s and their Series 14s. Uh, whatnot. So I've done that, but also I'm just very passionate about economics. And I think people know is that I've, I have over 2,000 videos where I talk about the history of economic thought, uh, economic theory, economic application, economic data. Just um, I'm really passionate about human behavior and what makes people tick and how do we make the world a happier place. And I think economics has a lot to do with that, which is why it's always been a passion for me. Yeah, I think economics is a key thing. And you know, a lot of people are bored by it. But it intertwines so many things. You know, it's interesting to me, people who are interested in politics and don't care about economics, because I don't think you can understand politics without understanding economics. Agreed. And I mean, not just economics, but finance as well. I mean, once I really got a good appreciation for like uh, interest rates and looking at yield curves, I mean, politics becomes so much more clear when you sit there and you're thinking, yep. okay, well, the interest on your debt, on your government's debt is going to pay a huge incentive in how different policy decisions get made and whatnot. And what the drivers are. So you've got a website, a basic how to learn economics, learn economics website, which is pretty cool with all kinds of videos. And, you know, it goes from basics to things like understanding the Phillips curve. Like a lot of people don't even know what the heck the Phillips curve is. How in the world did you come up with the idea of just putting together a website for basic economics? Um, it's just basically that something that's kind of come out of what I naturally do. The way, the way I like to learn is to teach. Um, I always found that by teaching something helps you learn it better because when you explain something to somebody, you start realizing what you know and what you don't know. Um, because if you know it, you can explain it. Right. So as I was learning uh, out of the 2007-2008 election, um, I got really interested in economics. So I started just kind of getting my hands on every book, watching every video, every lecture that I could I could find. And as I learned things. I put them to video, I got feedback, and I just kept doing it. Um, and I still do that to this day, except right now I'm doing it with programming because I'm teaching myself programming and I'm making videos of what I learn as I go. So it's always just been part of sort of my method of how I learn and improve myself, but also by sharing it with others so that way they can they can learn along with me and save themselves some time. Yeah, makes sense. 
So how did you end up on Wall Street? It's very similar to how I got involved in economics. So basically, um, the 2007 election had a huge impact on my life. I mean, 2008 election. Right. It was really in 2007 uh, with the debates that I got involved. So what happened is originally my plan was to go move to Chicago, be a musician, had long hair, all this stuff. And then there was, of course, the very famous Ron Paul Giuliani moment. Mm -hmm. That's what sparked my interest in economics and finance. So this kind of shifted me to move to New York, uh, along with some other events. And in New York, I ended up getting a job as a stockbroker. I got my Series 7, I got my Series 63, uh, and I kept hearing people talk about this company, Greco Financial Training, and how they, they teach in a very unique way. Um, so then I eventually ended up meeting James Greco, the CEO of, of Greco Financial Training, and he thought I had the charisma, that I, that I kind of knew my stuff, and said, why don't you go uh, teach for us part-time? And I started teaching there part-time, I started kind of developing a following, and little by little, I basically became sort of um, a fixture, a full-time fixture at the company, and where, where I've been basically teaching 90% of the courses. I teach all the online courses for Reco Financial Training, um, and that, that that's kind of how I really ended up being in finance and spending pretty much all my time thinking about finance, thinking about stocks, thinking about bonds, tour, t- taking people down for tours to the New York Stock Exchange, and doing all sorts of cool events, and uh, at the same time, developing that website, LearnEconomicsNow.com. Yeah. You know, it's funny how uh, life just kind of takes you in weird directions. So this interview is just about to go completely off the rails. And the same thing happened when when I interviewed Nick Gillespie uh, over at Reason Magazine. uh, Because I'm a musician and I love music. So since you mentioned musician, I have to ask you about that, even though it has Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about. But uh, what kind of music did you do and what did you play? Um, I play guitar and I... But I do all sorts of kinds of music. So I play guitar. I do a little bit of singing and songwriting. It's on YouTube, so you can find that on YouTube along with all my economics videos and pretty much anything else I've ever done. Um, but I also like to do some uh, electronic music production. Uh, so I listen to like everything: folk music, metal, uh, indie, indie stuff. Um, a lot. Of, some I had my phases where I was like into like, sort of just world music and listening to like different music from different regions of the world. Um, I always kind of end up falling back into prog rock. Um, punk, uh, but basically a very eclectic music taste. I was a college radio DJ and a concert promoter while I was in college. So I had exposure to all the newest albums every week. So basically every week was like 50 new albums at my disposal that I would be able to listen to. So um, music was very much a passion for a good chunk of my life until it still it still is. I still do right. music. I still play guitar, but, it, it, before, but that was everything up until I discovered economics. And I was like, this is really interesting. This yeah. is really yummy. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk more music when we get done. Uh, but it is interesting to me how many people who are in the, the quote-unquote liberty movement that are musicians. There's there's a lot of us. Uh, there's something about that part of your brain that well, I guess makes you open it, to that. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, when you when you are creative, um, you want to you see possibility, and you want the, there to be sort of a vast array of possibility, and that's really what libertarianism is all about by basically making sure that you open up the entire realm of possibility to every individual. Yeah. So I can hear people out there now. Oh man, economics is so boring, dude. Why do I need to learn it? And we kind of touched you kind of touched on it, but. But give me give me your elevator pitch for why, if you're just your average guy sitting there watching this video, why do you need to understand economics? I think at the end of the day, one of the things about life, just as far as as an individual, why this is going to improve your life, is just that it's all about making decisions mm-hmm. and making better decisions because you're able to understand 
the information around you is that better is, is going to make you that much better at making your decisions. And when you study economics and you study sort of uh, human action and how people uh, how people are motivated by prices and are influenced by prices and interest rates and all this stuff, one, it'll help you kind of understand how other people are making their decisions and it'll help you understand how to make better decisions for yourself and see the kind of signals that are constantly around us. And that can only enrich your life, and not just wealthy-wise, but also improve your life in the sense of being able to figure out what trade-offs you're making so that way you can make the trade-offs that you want to make to have the life that you want. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because we're really talking about, you know, people think economics and they think supply and demand curves and charts and things like that. But like you said, we're really talking about human action here. It's, it's, a, it's a bigger thing than just... Uh, you know, raw numbers and and uh, finance. It's really it encompasses so much more. Like you said, decision making. So, who are some of the economists that were big influences on you? Now, when I first got into the economics, probably the first book I read was *The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism* by Robert Murphy. Okay. Um, and at the time, I had already heard of the Mises Institute and Austrian economics, but I didn't realize that Robert was one of them. Yeah. So I just really enjoyed this book, and I was like, this, "This sounds like a lot of what I've been hearing over here." And then later on, I kind of Put two and two together, but also, but Tom and Ro, uh, Tom Woods and Robert Murphy, their literature was probably really the core in the early days. I, I definitely did listen to a lot of uh, lectures and uh, read a lot of essays by Mises, Hayek, Rothbard, um, and then also pop, what I did do uh, is I spent probably the first all of 2009 and 2010 probably listening to almost all of the back catalogs of recordings of Mises University oh, wow. and all the lectures for each year and a lot of the other content on Mises.org. Like I we actually had this uh, one piece was called like the Rosetta Stone of Taxation. It's like a 13-hour discussion of the history of taxation and I would just consume it and I just find it fascinating because one, the knowledge and how I can apply it to today but also just kind of seeing how different, sometimes small events, small incentives make huge differences in the trajectory of history which is also why it's not just economics, but philosophy, history. All have, having a real strong interdisciplinary set of knowledge can really help someone having a solid perspective at having a better life and just being thoughtful about the things that you do in life. Yeah. It seems like Tom and Bob are like the gateway drug to libertarianism. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Because Tom was definitely a big influence on me. I, I got to know him through uh, working at the Tenth Amendment Center. We were doing these Nullify Now tours this has been about 10 years ago now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was usually the keynote speaker. And at the time, I was kind of in that neocon, Republican, you know, limited government kind of thing. And uh, started to get to know Tom. And, uh, and yeah, he had a profound in- – I didn't realize at the time that he was as radical as he is, you know. Kinda, yeah. They kind of pulled the wool over my eyes and it sucked me in. Um, yeah, it's kind of like that frog with the slowly boiling water, and then you realize, yeah, oh man, yeah, you wake, I want to abolish everything. <laughs> you wake up one day and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm an anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So you spend a lot of time on Wall Street. You're around a lot of people that are in the investment world. What's like the biggest myth, economic myth, that you see folks out on Wall Street embracing? Uh, you know, things that they they don't seem to get. I think a lot of people don't place enough of an emphasis on sort of micro microeconomics. Oftentimes, a lot of people play a lot off the macro. They sit there and they respond to the Fed making a Fed announcement or earnings, um, and which is not necessarily unfounded per se, because at the end of the day, markets, at least day to day, oftentimes aren't run on 
the, what's really going on in the world, but run on psychology. And basically, I'm trying to predict, hey, when are, is everybody else going to sell? And I want to sell before they sell. Right. So if I think other people are going to sell, I'm going to sell. But that becomes a self-fulfilling thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what happens is that it uh, prevents people from looking at the actual what's going on underneath, the actual sort of the run-up, the, the business cycle, um, the run-up, the lowering of interest rates, the run-up of capital prices, all these kind of things, which prevents people from really being able to kind of prepare and and look at their portfolio and sit there and say, hey, you know what? To some extent, I need to take a look at the psychology of the market and use it use it to my advantage, but at the same time, have things in place for when that bus eventually does come, because eventually does come. Eventually, um, that that event will happen, but people get too optimistic. They get too caught up in the, psycho- the psychology game and forget sort of the, the longer-term uh, a prudent decision making that can happen when you understand the, the longer economic trends. Yeah, it's interesting to me to watch, and, and this is something that I've noticed just over the last few months: the way the market reacts to every tweet that Donald Trump puts out about the trade war. So, like one day he'll tweet out and say, you know, things are looking good. We're, we're going to get a deal done, and then the stock market will go up 150, 200 points. And uh, you know, then two days later, oh, we're going to keep tariffs on, and and then you know, the it, it drops down. It's it's kind of bizarre to, to think that a tweet about something that hasn't happened can have so mm-hmm. much influence day to day on the markets. Um, yeah, no, expectations are more volatile than ever, and as expectations are volatile, prices are going to be volatile. Because at the end of the day, all the market is is a bunch of people saying this is what I expect to happen. Right. And since information travels further than ever, so does so do prices, which is not a bad thing. I think. Right now, we're kind of going through, as a society, we're going through a sort of transformational phase where, because I, I got this question on a, another previous interview where basically, it, has technology been a good thing? Has has all this volatility with the news and Twitter and all this stuff been a good thing? And to me, it's just, it's more of an evolution. The idea is that this is all really new. This whole idea of getting so bombarded with information all the time uh, from so many different angles, um, it's something that society is still learning how to deal with. But over time, as a society, we will learn how to what the new normal looks like, how to process information in a reasonable way. And we're going to be glad, and I'm already glad that we have this technology. But the, 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 right now, we're just going through the growing pains of learning how to live with it. Sure. And you see that kind of evolution in everything and, and through all times. You know, I'm sure that you know, the telephone uh, created a whole new, new world. The television created a whole new world. And then internet. So, yeah, there's a constant, a constant march forward. Um, and I always emphasize this, and, and let me see if you agree. You know, it's important underneath all of that, and, and this is what you're doing such a good job of with your website and your videos, understanding those basic fundamental economic principles so that you have a, a solid foundation upon which to analyze this massive swirling data. Yes. No, I to- totally, uh, totally agree that it's understanding the little bits and pieces. So understanding... Um, I mean, the basics of sort of, you know, that people are acting purposely, but also understanding things like externalities and understanding uh, a lot of the different economic ideas from different economists and how those ideas evolve. Because even if you don't agree with a particular idea, knowing sort of what influenced that person's idea, where it came from, how did it permutate, a lot of that I find informative in seeing how thought has gotten to where it is, but where it will go. Right. Because it, so it's important to build those little building blocks. Right. All right, so I've got a technical question for you, of, or not 
terribly technical, but about a about a specific thing. Something that I think is is a lot of uh, creates some confusion with folks that are uh, interested in, in investing in precious metals, and that's the difference between an ETF and actually holding physical metal. So if, can you kind of give a real quick overview of what an ETF is? Because I don't think a lot of people really grasp that concept. Got it. I'm going to give a very technical answer because I find ETFs fascinating. Okay. So, I'm gonna, so I'll, I'll kind of give you the whole history because it's, sure. it's actually pretty fascinating. Um, so the first, the, the simple part, an ETF is literally just a stock, I mean a, a mutual fund that trades like a stock. Mm-hmm. But where it evolved from was mutual funds. People are familiar with mutual funds. You, you buy shares of a portfolio of securities, of bonds, all sorts of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. But what happened is that a, a while ago, something a strategy called indexing became very popular, where you just have a portfolio that follows like a stock index, like the S&P 500. And you know, there's always this debate between active versus passive management. The idea that, hey, is it better for me to pay a portfolio manager a little extra to get extra gains and beat the market? Or should I pay lower management fees and just take what the market gives me mm-hmm. by buying an index fund? problem with an index fund is that mutual funds generally don't trade like stocks, which means I cannot bet on them going down by shorting them. I cannot hedge my risk by buying options. Mm-hmm. So there's all these different things I cannot do with an index fund. So there's demand for a tradable product. problem is the alternative, a closed-end fund, had some problems as far as the market price of, of, the, of the actual closed-end fund trading not necessarily matching the actual value of the portfolio. So they were like, okay, how can we create something like that? How can we do this? So the idea was, how about we create a mutual fund share, but instead of letting anybody be able to cash it in whenever they want, you can only cash it in in large, like 50,000 share blocks. Mm-hmm. And the benefit of this was, is that if only people who are going to really cash in those 50,000 share blocks are going to be institutions. Right. So and, and so institutions, what they do is they'll arbitrage, they'll, they'll exploit the market price. So let's... Let's th- since we're talking about precious metals, we'll take the the, e- the ETF GLD for a moment. Right. So let's say the actual let's say GLD is worth let's say 120 today in the market. Right. But the underlying portfolio is now worth let's say 115. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference between the value of the underlying portfolio of gold versus the actual share price. Well, what happened is that an institution would be like, wait. What I can do is I'll go to the company that creates the ETF, buy new shares of the ETF. For at 115, and then go sell them in the market at 120, and, and make that profit. So right. because of that, the ETF's market price tends to stick with the underlying portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not literally buying, you're buying a share of a portfolio of gold when you buy GLD. But again, the value of that portfolio may not always necessarily, the value of the share in the market may not always be exactly what the actual value of the portfolio is. Also, if you actually wanted to have, also that if you're worried about. Um, situations where you may not have access to your securities and your investments, well, that gold is not necessarily going to be very helpful. So right. um, so this is why you may want to have some ETFs and some uh, physical gold. Right. But, on, but on top of that, the, the effect that ETFs have on the prices of the underlying is quite profound. Because what happens is that ETFs makes access to certain assets very, very accessible. So now when people buy GLD, if they keep buying GLD shares, if there's not enough shares for everybody, the price per share is going to go up mm-hmm. above the value of the actual gold in the portfolio. So what that's going to do is incentivize the same thing I said before, where those institutions are going to buy up, create new shares of GLD, which means that the, G- the GLD portfolio managers actually have to buy up more gold right. for that portfolio. And it'll all balance out, but there's this kind of dynamic. So as more and more people buy an ETF share, it actually drives up demand 
for that underlying asset. This is why a lot of people speculate on Bitcoin if for a Bitcoin for the possibility of a Bitcoin ETF, because that ETF fund company would actually have to go buy a bunch of Bitcoin right. to be in the underlying in that that ETF. So it the thing about an ETF is that it can have an influence on the price. It can push a price up because when you're buying the ETF, it actually ends up you're forcing the fund to actually eventually have to buy more of the underlying. So when you're buying GOD, it does force the underlying fund to buy more gold. Right. In a sense. That's the best explanation of that I've ever heard. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that, that's I'm good. very into that topic. <laughs> yeah. And it's and it's interesting just just from a from a current standpoint, uh, the World Gold Council just released their um, uh, the June inflows and outflows of, of metal and uh, the uh, globally ETFs added like 126 tons of gold uh, in the month of June, which was a, a huge inflow. Uh, so it's you can see what you're saying is the price of gold has gone up. More people have been interested in, in uh, diversifying into gold, so they're buying the shares. So that means they have to buy the metal. So you can Correct. see exactly how that's uh, how that's transpired. And th- and this creates sort of like I guess the big worry always is is that since ETFs make assets more accessible, which creates more demand for the underlying asset, how how far does that go? So, for example, and then also when it comes to things like things like like real like like let's say steel, gold, whatever, if all that stuff is being sort of kind of held off to the side, kind of for this portfolio. Uh, I mean, there's all these different the ETFs haven't been around long enough to know what the long term ramifications are. Right. But I generally find it to be an amazing product that allows investors to get access to things that they otherwise couldn't as easily get access to. Right. Which is always a good thing if people can get more access to gold more access to silver more access to platinum more access to foreign stocks more access to uh alternative investments that's that's great um they can have they can diversify and hedge yeah i know shift gold the the precious metal guys over there you know their their advice is uh both are good uh they they advise holding physical metal for the obvious security reasons for it and then you can uh add to that with your etfs and of course the 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 beauty of an etf is it's a lot more liquid um, yep. You know, you can hop on a computer and trade your e- ETF shares, buy, buy and sell both. Uh, whereas your physical gold is a little bit more of a process to move those. So, um, kudos on that explanation. Thank you. Um, so, just one more quick macro question for you. Uh, we've been talking a lot about uh, at, at uh, on my podcast and whatnot, and, and writing a lot about the current movements of the Fed, and it looks for all. Uh, it looks like we're heading into an easing cycle, which is bizarre because we're like what two point five percent. Do you think that the uh, the the Fed's going to be able to keep the bubble pumped up, or uh, are are we kind of moving toward a recession no matter what they do, or are they just kind of ahead of the curve? How, how do you see what the Fed is doing right now? What's kind of your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, theoretically, the Fed is really um, has its back against a rock and a hard place, yeah, because. If it lets rates kind of rise to where they would naturally rise, well, you have the government budget that's going to explode. Right. You have um, all sorts of – and I apologize for any sirens, but in the background, I live in Brooklyn, so there's always kind of the sounds of Brooklyn around. Oh, yeah, we like that. We like that whole real ambient vibe there. As long as nobody comes yeah, so busting in the apartment and drag you out or something, yeah. you know, we don't want that. Don't worry. I'm not being detained. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but um, as far as the Fed goes, so if they, if they let rates rise – it's going to have sort of a negative impact on the economy, right. which, I mean, okay, I hate that word negative impact because it's not a negative impact, but it's going to slow down activity in the short run. Right. 
but that also means build up of savings, which also means much more sound investment in the long run. So that's right. not bad nor good. It's just what happens. Um, but if you if they bring interest rates back down, then you, of course you, you can kickstart another bubble. You can kickstart and then other bubbles haven't even popped yet. Um, but also at the same time, when you keep lowering the interest rates, you you keep building up spigots for that sort of debt overhang, especially of government debt. Right. Because then the basically policymakers are like, well, interest is cheap and we owe yeah. it to ourselves, so we just keep piling it on. Right. Um, and since so much of our government debt is financed at the short-term maturities since the Clinton years, I mean, any interest rate change has a huge impact on how much interest service we pay. Yeah. But whether how long can the Fed do this? I mean, a lot of people didn't think the Fed could do it this long. Right. Uh, I, I certainly didn't. Yeah, and one of the big changes I don't think enough people are talking about is the advent of digital goods. I think this really changed the calculus mm-hmm. because traditionally you would expect a lot more inflation when you increase the money supply this much. Why? Because there's a physical, there's a there's an app, there's a limit to the physical goods, and then basically as you purchase those goods, there's less of them, right. so the remaining currency is gonna it's gonna have to cost more. But when I go on Angry Birds and I spend a dollar on an extra life on Angry Birds, there's really little has changed in the actual absolute amount of goods. I mean, there's some electricity that was used and some right. time, but there's I can almost purchase as many extra lives on Angry Birds without changing the, 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 the... So digital goods, cryptocurrency, I think, have, have sort of changed the dynamic a little bit. That's maybe bought the Fed a little bit of time. I don't, I don't think it's... It's definitely not forever. I don't think it's going to be decades either, um, but it might have bought them a few more years because... You have digital goods create a place where you can increase the velocity of money, the amount that money moves, without impacting necessarily the physical space as much as before, where everything was physical. So basically, it was a real direct relationship. But I don't think this is something that's really been studied yet, or anyone's really looked into yet. So really, this is just theoretical. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought about that, and it's it, that's absolutely true. Um, Go so, buy yeah, angry, go buy Angry Lives, uh, Angry Bird Lives, and and keep the bubbles inflated. <laughs> exactly, just sit there, and then the GDP keeps going up because every dollar right. you spend on Angry Birds is part of GDP. There you so go. Trump can be like, yes, we elect me. <laughs> we've, we've solved the we've solved the, <laughs> the global <laughs> economy, right here on the uh, It's Your Dime Show. Yeah, it, it is interesting to watch, and and of course, you know, President Trump is certainly jonesing for those uh, low interest rates. Um, a lot of people speculate that it's because he wants to uh, to forestall any potential in, uh, recession or crash, you know, until he gets reelected. Which, you know, that's politics for you. Um, do you, Do you believe that the Fed is an independent agency above the fray of politics? <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> the structure of the Fed is is fascinating in the sense that. It's not purely a political beast, but it's not a piece of the public or has the public's interest at all. Basically, it kind of comes at two ends. You have the board of governors that's generally all appointed by the president. So right there, it's already political. Whoever the president is going to have a huge influence over what the Fed does. But then when you take a look at the the, the Federal Open Market Committee, uh, the Fed bank chairs um, are kind of elected by the board of the banks. And the board of the banks are made up by bankers, small, medium, and large banks. Mm -hmm. So basically the two interests that the Fed has are the political interests and the banking interests. There's not really anyone there that represents the public. People say that, oh, well, that's what the board of governors is there for. The the, 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 the government appointees are the, the people who represent the public. But <laughs> but no, no, they represent the politicians. Right. Um, yeah. I, I'm not one to think that the government represents me in any way, shape, or form. But Agreed. 
So it's it's a political beast. It's a beast. It's it's a weird marriage between the banking industry and uh, the the government, um, which is and um, it's not an institution that I hold in a very high regard, um, or just the whole idea of government control over money and yeah. centralization of sort of mon- money and money substitutes. But you know, I think nowadays. There's more competition. Mm-hmm. There is more pressures on the on the on the on the Fed to think through its policy, uh, because it's much easier for us to interact with each other. Where you, whether you're using a credit card to pay in gold or yeah. using uh, BitPay to pay in Bitcoin, whatever they did, right. having those alternatives allow people to opt out and puts pressure on bad policy. Yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, currency competition. Uh, Agreed. In, in, in whatever form. So I've got one more question for you. This is the most important question that is asked on the It's Your Dime Show. Basically, we'll determine whether or not you ever get to be on the show again. Oh. Okay, so no pressure, but lots of pressure here. So, you do a lot of typing and writing, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. When you're typing, do you put two spaces after a period in a sentence? I don't think so. That wouldn't even occur to you, would it? No. No. Should because, it? Because you're young. No, it's yes. <laughs> absolutely it's absolutely the right answer. But uh-huh. see there's this divide and it's it's at about 40. Uh-huh. And it's people who have taken typing, okay? So mm-hmm. back in the old days when everybody typed on typewriters, the way that the uh, the font was, I can I don't even know if you call a typewriter a font. I mm-hmm. guess the typesetting. Uh, it, it actually would look like there was no space with certain letters. So the typing standard was to always Period, space, space, next sentence. Got it. So people that took typing classes, people that are over the age of 40, still like to put that double space in. It is an absolute nightmare for people like me who do editing because it looks stupid on the Internet. (laughs) It does. Yeah. So I get these papers and and things. People send me these Word docs, especially for like when I'm working, uh, doing stuff for the Tenth Amendment Center, and there's all these double spaces and Thank goodness just, Word, Word has the, the you know, find and replace because you can just fix all that. But yeah, it's funny. Because, I don't even use spaces. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because. It's one big word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. But it's funny because like, like you were completely flummoxed by that question. But, but a lot of the folks that I've interviewed, uh, they're like, oh, yeah, I, I do that. And, and I have some people that emphatically want to insist that they should still keep doing it. I'm like, no, you need to get out of 1953. We're done with that. So. I agree. Like a lot of people get really attached to certain practices, and the thing is, like a lot of times, it's because people just realize like that's the thing you did, but they don't remember why was the reason they did it. Yeah. So it just be like, well, this is just the proper way of doing things, so we have to keep doing it because the tradition. Yeah. When almost all traditions, all practices came out of some sort of utilitarian use, some sort of reason at the time that it was necessary, and while that should be respected and understood doesn't mean we shouldn't reflect and make sure we understand our practices of today based on the way the world works today. Yeah. There's a funny story, and uh, I, don't, I don't remember where I heard this, but like going back, there's a, a daughter, okay, and she's learning how to cook a roast. I guess it doesn't have to be a daughter in, in this day and age, but whoever, cooking a roast, and they cut the end, both ends off the roast and put it in the oven. So somebody's like, Mom, why are you, putting, why are you cutting the ends off the roast? Well, that's what your grandmother did. So she goes and asks her grandmother, Grandma, why do you cut the end off, off the roast? And Grandma says, well, the oven was too small. 
<laughs> you know, because the ovens were smaller yeah. back then. So it's one of those things that, that, that things like that can get passed down. So anybody that's out there listening, do not put two spaces after a period if you're typing. If you're typing on a typewriter, go for it. But nobody does that. So, so before we go, I want to give you a chance to let folks know where to find all good things, Alex Merced. Um, so website, Twitter, whatever you want people to find, uh, tell us, and we'll make sure that they get linked to in the show notes page as well. Uh, you can generally find everything at alexmerced.com. That's my main website where you can find all my projects, everything that I do. But the, some of the really important URLs are like learneconomicsnow.com, where you can learn everything about economics, libertarian101.com, where you can learn everything about libertarianism. Um, if you go to mercedbranding.com, this is a, a, a something I do where I do some branding, but also I have a lot of videos there for those who are looking to develop their brand, also about podcasting and whatnot. Uh, also, subscribe to my podcast, The Alex Mercedcast, on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, where I talk mostly about economics and politics. I also have some non-economics pod- uh, podcasts. Just look up my name on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. And, uh, but basically, if you just type my name into any kind of search box, you will find something that I'm doing, whether it's music, politics, economics, uh, business, or something. I, I, I try to be a little bit of everywhere. You're a man with many hats, and you're doing great work over at the Libertarian Party. You're the, Thank uh, you. You're the great um, – what's the word I'm looking for? I uh, can't think of the word. You're building bridges. You're the great build bridger of the Libertarian – build, build bridger? Bridge builder of the Libertarian Party. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm trying. I, I want. I want the liberty movement is vast and it is great. Um, you know, it's just focusing on what unites us versus what divides us, and it just needs to be a little bit more of that. I'm trying to do my part to, to contribute to that. Well, you're doing great work, and I appreciate you taking a little bit of time on on, uh, on a Monday night to talk to me and uh, share your insights into the world of uh, investing and economics and. Uh, hopefully people check out your videos because I'm telling you what, there are some fantastic resources. And you guys have heard how he talks and how he teaches. The videos are like that. They're simple. You'll get it. It's good stuff. It's worth watching. So, Thank you. Thanks again, brother. We'll talk to you Thank next you. time. Talk to you soon. You've been watching It's Your Dime, an interview series presented by Shift Gold. For more information on investing in gold and silver, talk to a Shift Gold precious metal specialist today at 1-888-GOLD-160. That's 1-888-465-3160. Or visit us on the web at shiftgold.com. You can keep up with all of the latest precious metals news at shiftgold.com slash news. And tune in each week to the Shift Gold Friday Gold Wrap Podcast. This is your host, Mike Meharry. I appreciate you watching, and I'll talk to you again next time. Thank you.